Amen. Well, good morning. I hope that you all are well. We certainly have a lot to do today and so much to look forward to this morning. We're continuing in our sermon series, Summer in the Psalms. And if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. A couple weeks ago, we started in Psalm 1, because that's how I roll. I just want to go consecutively through. And as we started the Psalms, we said that the Psalms are songs that teach. They teach us how to give thanks. They teach us how to give thanks for all that God has given to us. They teach us how to give thanks not just for what God has given, but more importantly and even greater, the Psalms teach us primarily to thank God for God, to thank him for him, for who he is. They, so therefore they teach us how to, how to worship, how to properly respond to God because the priority of worship to the glory of God is the purpose of the church. The Psalms teach us to look to Jesus Christ. The Psalms teach us, yes, about obedience. They teach us some doctrine. It teaches worship and devotion. It teaches us about suffering and joy and love. They teach us about emotion. We turn to the Psalms often in the, in the reading in our, our gatherings and our songs and prayers because we can relate to them in the highs and lows of life when following the Lord. We read the Psalms in our rejoicing and we pour over them in tears, with tears and sorrow. All of this means, as I said from the onset, is that the Psalms are to teach us primarily to take our eyes off of ourselves and to place them upon the Lord, to look to him, to look to the blessed man, the righteous man, to turn to our king, our shepherd, our redeemer, our refuge, and our righteousness. In Psalm 1, we were taught to look to the blessed man, the righteous man, who doesn't take part in the wickedness of the world around them, but rather delights in the law of God, in the word of God. And he is like a tree planted by streams of, of flowing, living water. But the ways of the wicked, they're not so. They will be judged and they will perish in their sin. The blessed man described in Psalm 1 is not particularly us. Primarily, it is not us. It's not something that we are to read and in our moral uprightness to uh, try to be like, but rather it is a description of the righteous Savior in his uprightness, in his righteousness, in his love for the God's law and law, God's word that led him to the cross and to suffer for our sin. So there's Psalm 1. They're standing on, on one side of this of this road, this great pillar standing at the entrance to the Psalms. And now this morning as we turn to Psalm 2, across that path is another great pillar standing right across the path, forming this gate into the entrance of this Psalter. Psalm 1 told us about how righteous Christ is, how blessed 
he is. And Psalm 2 introduces us to his sovereign, kingly authority, who is worthy of us following and bowing down and worshiping him and submitting our lives to. Let's look to chapter 2, and we'll begin reading verse 1 together. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy inspired and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Isn't that a glorious psalm? Not particularly a psalm you will hear a king or a president or a premier or prime minister ever read. As it is such a wonderful, strong, worded psalm, this is for God's people. It is to be a comfort to our souls. Like in Psalm 1, there's editor titles, you see that in your Bibles, but there's no manuscripts titles, right? There's no titles in the, in the manuscript like in Psalm 1. However, we know this to be a psalm that David wrote because in Acts chapter 4, Peter tells us, like David said, by the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to quote verses 1 and 2. Psalm 2 is often thought as a song, the psalm that was sung when David became king, when David was coronated as the king of Israel. So that the time between David became king, when he was coronated, between when he was anointed by Samuel as a boy, if you know the scriptures, wasn't exactly a very easy ascent for David. They were filled with strife. They were filled with conflict. They were filled with difficulty. That shadow of those years casted over that day of coronation, that this did not come easily. Not to mention the history of Israel. 
before that. Because in this song, they're confronted by such truths, and so are we. But not just Israel's history and King David, but the struggle and the strife of all humanity against the king. This morning's message, brothers and sisters, is very simple. Psalm 1 acts as a summary of the whole scriptures, contrasting the wicked man to the righteous man, and ultimately, point, ultimately points to the righteous Savior. And Psalm 2 shows us another grand theme that runs throughout scriptures from the very beginning to the very end, is man's futile rebellion against the Lord's kingly reign to establish his son. We read that in Exodus 8 this morning. The futility of a pharaoh who was considered a god, was humbled by gnats and frogs. So I have three points straight from the text. <clears throat> Raging nations against the king. God has established the king. And we are called to rejoice and follow the king. In these first three verses, we see the, the motive and the desires of, of those who oppose the king. And it's very clear from the onset. I mean, right there in, in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Strong language. They're, they're raging. They're plotting. And that rage then is sharpened in verse 2. The kings of the earth, they have set themselves against, like an opposing enemy, like a defense before an offense on a football field, opposing them to stopping them from scoring. They have set themselves against them, and they take counsel together. They plot, they make plans against the Lord, against his anointed, Set again in the, in the context of the song that was sang of the trials and suffering of David endured from Saul and from other kings and tribes that set themselves against David. Who David was the Lord's anointed. Remember Samuel anointed David to be the king of Israel. Which by coming against the king, when you come against the Lord's anointed, the king then you're setting yourself up against the Lord. That's not the kind of place you want to be in. That's what he's saying. You don't want to be here. Now, we understand this psalm isn't just fulfilled in David, but it's pointing us through the kingly line of David to the son of David, the son of man, the son of God who was born in the city of David, who also is anointed by the Lord. The word anointed in Hebrew, as many of you know, is Messiah. So when he says anointed, the anointed by the Lord, the Lord's Messiah, Yahweh's Messiah. In the Greek, it's Christ. It's not Jesus' last name. It's Christ, meaning anointed. Where do we know these words? We've heard these words in the New Testament describing Jesus. 
He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. So in these first three verses, not only in its immediate context do we see David and the strife and the struggle that David had to, but we see the constant struggle between the kingdom that man is attempting to build with the kingdom of God. That's what we see here. We see that struggle that began all the way back in the garden between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. In the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, man chose to rebel against God's rule and against his authority as his creatures. And ever since then, man still attempts to overthrow God's sovereign rule in their lives and in this world. To put themselves as place of God. This is what is ultimately underneath all sin. It is the desire to cast off God's rule and God's authority and say, I know what's better. We understand this not just from the scripture, and I don't mean to belittle that because certainly that is where we learn this, but the, act, but the, the evidence of the doctrine of depravity that is taught in God's word is just everywhere in everyday life. There's more evidence for this doctrine than, than almost anything else. All around us is broken strife, rebellion, and sin. The evidence of this is overwhelming. It's overwhelming in our own lives. We can barely stand on our own because of the, the guilt and the shame that sometimes we carry. And this isn't just something new. It's not just something unique in our day, that sin is somehow unique in our day, but it has been the shared experience of man since almost the very beginning. The absolute and the complete rebellion against God and his word. What God has called good. His word, nature itself, these things that God has called good, even created order, man calls evil and rebels against it. And what man calls good God's word certainly in many ways is called evil. Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us about these kind of days. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self. Listen to this. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Good advice for God's people at the very end there. Avoid them. And particularly, those who have the appearance of godliness and yet deny its power. So do the nations rage and plot in vain? 
Are the kings of the earth set against the Lord? Are they set against Jesus Christ and his church? The answer to that question is an obvious yes. Throughout church history and still today in some places, of the, the church faces tremendous amounts of opposition. Even though within times of history, within Christendom, the church has found favor within some countries, including our own, although we're seeing that gradually slip away. But as Christians, we, we certainly need to be thankful. We need to be grateful. We need to take full advantage of the liberty that we have. However, when Christians begin to merge the church with the, with the government, then problems will come. Because the kingdom of man, the nations, is not the same as the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will not be found within bureaucracy of the U.S. government, or a presidency, or a legislative branch, or a judicial branch. Verse 2 tells us that the kings of the earth and its rulers are conspiring together. They take counsel together against the Lord. So these, these certainly the kings of the earth, we know those to be governmental authorities, right? But, but these rulers also include pretty much everyone else, right? We would know them as maybe media moguls and movie directors and producers and corporations and celebrities athletes, news media, anchors, bloggers, writers, and anything now that, that includes within the term influencer. Plot in vain. Just about anybody has the ability to change things. There is a universal and shared rebellion against the Lord and his anointed. So we're not just talking about nations and rulers, but we're talking about the people. The rest of the world, apart from the people of God, they plot, they conspire, they take counsel together in their sin and rage against God and the Lord and his word and his anointed. You know, there is not much that every single person in this world or culture and nation can agree on. From Brazilians to the Danish to Germans to Ugandans, from every tribe and every people, they all agree on this one issue, a rebellious plot against the Lord. What's interesting here is I found that this word plot there in verse 1 is also the same word or the same idea of the word used in Psalm 1 verse 2 of the one who meditates, which I don't think that's meditates, the blessed man that delights and meditates on the word of the Lord. They are murmuring and whispering, not in a way to meditate on God's word, to take counsel to themselves to God's word, to submit themselves to God's word, but to conspire against his kingdom. But as it tells us that their plotting is in vain, their plotting is futility. Their plotting is stupidity. It's rebellion and sin against God is futile and, and stupid. 
But in our sin, in our stupidity, man still rebels against God and the sovereign rule of his anointed one, his son. In verse 3, you then can hear the anthem of the sinful man. This is what they say. Let us burst there, meaning the Lord and his anointed. Let us burst their bands apart and cast their cords away from us. So what is man crying out? Man is crying out for freedom. But they're not crying out from freedom from sin or human tyranny. They are crying out for a freedom to be enslaved to tyranny. To be enslaved to sin to be enslaved by their own tyranny, to be enslaved by the tyranny toward others. The freedom they cry out is not freedom. They're crying out for an absence of all restraint. We want nothing holding us back. Freedom from God's law from his word, from his existence, from his created order, from him and from his anointed. But what we've already seen in, in verse 1, as we will continue to see in this psalm, is that this freedom is not freedom, but it's continually bondage because it is in vain. Romans 1 explains the plight of natural man raging against God, rebelling for their false freedom. So Romans 1, chapter, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of man, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. There is no God I am God. I can do what I want. I am my own autonomous being. These are my rights. They suppress the truth. Suppress them. For what can be known about God, though, is plain. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts and in their hearts to impurity to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Tragically, do we see that happening? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their 
women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Brothers and sisters, God is sovereign. Where am I? They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Where do we see that? Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that for those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Romans 1 here is an explanation of verses 1 through 3. It's not just about the, the just condemnation of homosexuality, but it is an indictment against all men and women who are rebellious because we are rebellious in our natural desires for our own freedom, and we're willing to cast off even what the Creator has said is good. We trade, exchange truth for a lie. And in the end, as Psalm 1 tells us, Lord lets that leash go in his wrath to our very own extinction. <sighs> Brothers and sisters, I'm not sure about you. But not only do I see this rebellion all around me, I also can recognize this rage and this raging in my own heart at times. I can feel that rage, and I hate it. I'm thankful for grace and the Holy Spirit and the way the Lord uses his word as that two-edged sword. We praise God for that. Naturally, we believe in ourselves that we can declare our own autonomy for our own personal rights and to live according to what feels right in my own eyes. Not only is that our nature, but it is the current that we are either swimming with or we are swimming against. True freedom is not freedom from all restraint, but true freedom is being set free by the king who has come to set the captives free. And then to gladly and joyfully live in obedience to him. And second here, God establishes his king. Again, man wants freedom without restraint. He wants self-rule and autonomy. But man rages and we plot and we counsel together. It's, it's all around us. It's in us. And it has been that way since, again, almost the beginning of, of, of time. And we see where we where we have landed and will continue to go. We heard man's heart and man's heart and man's words in verse 3 to cast off everything that God has placed on them. But now in verses 4 through 9, we hear God's response to man's rebellion. Verse 4, 
he who sits in the heavens laughs. The he is not David. The he is the Lord. And he is laughing at man's folly. The vanity of plotting and counseling together. And the Lord holds them in derision. Verse 5. Then he, God, will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I, verse 7, now is David speaking, will tell of this decree. The Lord has said to me, David, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, verse 4 is, describes to us the sound that is heard from heaven when man is there shaking his fist at God in rebellion. God there is mocking them. And yet this mockery is much more terrible. It's a much more terrible voice than what we can ever do in shaking our fist against God because God's laughter is terrifying. Now in this terror, it's not evil, nor is it like the parent who permissively laughs at their toddler throwing themselves on the ground having a tantrum saying, oh, how cute. That's not God. It's a mockery and a laughter that issues a terrifying rebuke. You see that there. It's terrifying. It's fury. He holds them in derision, mockery, rebuke. Now, this fear, this kind of fear, isn't something that we can necessarily understand completely, but it's the kind of fear that you, that you, uh, that you gain or you understand when you feel it. It's the kind of fear that you, that you feel. Like when an unexpected thunderclap closes in. And lightning strikes and puts you on the ground in terror and fear. It happened on Friday. I took the boys outside because they needed to go outside. They were going insane. Took them outside, play for a few minutes, and just as we were starting to go out, we started hearing thunder, but it looked distant, seemed distant. Let them go play. We were out there. I got their shoes on. Within three minutes, we're outside. Instantly, I saw a flash of light. And I couldn't even start counting. You know, we'd count. The, it was unbelievable how loud it was. Now, I understood because I had enough time to process lightning, here comes the thunder. But the boys didn't know it hit them. They went screaming, running to the door in, t in absolute terror, if you could have seen their face. This is the kind of terror that we feel. This is the kind of terror of the voice of God who is laughing at them in their futile plans. Because the God who made the whole earth and whose hands is, is, who's in whose hands is our very life in every breath, he who needs nothing from us, he laughs at their der in, in derision in our futile attempts of rebellion and to plot in vain. In verse 6, he speaks out and he says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion, 
the city of David, Zion, with the promises of the covenant are seen coming through David, Psalm 132. This, this king that David has established, he will, he will be like none other. He won't be like any other kings. He's certainly not going to be like Saul. And he's going to lead the nations who are raging. He's going to take possession of these nations that are raging against God. He will be the king who will exercise dominion and sovereign rule over the earth, the kingdom of God. This king is to be the blessed one of Psalm 1, as we already saw, not because he is strong or because he has riches, but, but because he walks, he sits, and he stands in righteousness because he delights in the law of the Lord. In verse 7, we see that this king uniquely shares in this father-son relationship with God. Even David shared in that relationship. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, in the covenant that the Lord made with David, he said, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. David was anointed to be king and was called to, to be that son and to have that relationship with, with God as king, but he failed. And yet in that kingly line was born another, Jesus, who was also, who was born of seed of the woman, the Son of God, who was without iniquity, and who would perfectly display this father-son relationship. And of course, in verse 7, we, we recognize from the Gospels, the voice of, of God that spoke from heaven, quoting this verse of his love and his approval of his own son when Jesus was baptized and during the transfiguration. And so in that approval, in this, this kingly son relationship with God, this is why we hear such dominion and authority given to this righteous king. For this son king, he, he is, receives the nations, the nations that are raging against him, his inheritance. God says, I will give them to you. Yet still in verse 9, the raging nations and, and people, his king's son, he will break them. And he will break the proud rebellion with the rod of iron and dash them into pieces like pottery. In light of these, ver these, these words, and brothers and sisters, this song that, that is sung, ultimately we see is sung of, of Jesus Christ, and it's quoted of Jesus Christ, of our Savior who is our King. And this is a truth bomb of the sovereignty of God and his authority as, as king that will terrify the raging nations. But for us, but for those who are in, in Christ, those who are his people, those who are in his kingdom, those who are following Jesus, those who have been transformed by this king's son, then Christian, 
despite all the chaos, despite all the insanity of the nations and the peoples and the kings and the rulers, if God has established his son and is established in king, then who are we to be afraid? At their futility, at their vanity, God laughs. We don't laugh. Sometimes it makes us laugh. I get it. But often we grieve. We grieve at what we lose. We grieve at sin. We grieve at the rebellion that we see, and we pray for them as we should. But we still can rest. And we can sleep well knowing that nothing happens that doesn't happen outside of the sovereign will of God. And why? Because the king has been established. And that king, Jesus Christ, is on his throne and he is reigning supremely. And there is none other that can compare. And those that attempt, he laughs. And that puts our fear in check. I want you to see something else. It's, and this is going to sound harsh, but it is easy for God to destroy his enemies. That sounds harsh in our culture today, doesn't it? But it's the truth. The conflict is not a stalemate. The conflict isn't even a chess match. It's not checkers, it's not man makes one move and then they, the other person makes a move and then God makes a move. That's not even close of the situation at hand. As we see here, with just one stroke, with his rod of iron, the, he breaks the pot into pieces. And we're to understand that because we can take a rod of iron and we see a pot. Or if you walk into a pottery store, this will be kind of fun one day. Maybe if we're really wealthy, we can buy a pottery store. We can just go in and have some satisfaction, like a bowl in a china shop. And we can just smash those things into pieces. As easy it is for anyone, as even Ezekiel can do it. As easy it is for them. It is the same for God to break the back of his enemies. Nothing. I don't care how many tanks, helicopters, soldiers you have. He is the king. And just by a word of his mouth, he will smote his enemies. There's a good word. We're to understand that picture. It's easy for God to destroy his enemies. Let's not fear that they are too big. Next, be encouraged again that God's word is true and that his promise and promises will not be broken. His promises throughout the Old Testament have been completely fulfilled in Christ and are still being fulfilled by the King who has been established and begotten Son. Heaven and earth will pass away, but every jot and tittle of the Scripture shall be fulfilled just like what we see in Psalm 2. 
The king was established. The son was begotten. And soon these raging nations will all be his. And he will come again as the righteous king with a rod of iron. Scripture is true. And all that he has said will come to pass. And lastly, along the same lines, Christ's kingdom will triumph. Kingdoms and nations come and go. Yet the kingdom of God has come and continues to come, and nothing can resist its progress. No matter the most wicked and the most sinful events or the wickedness that humanity tries to push forward as normal and good, it does not phase the victory of our king. It does not phase the ongoing march of the kingdom of God. When Christ our king died on the cross and was resurrected on the third day, his death and resurrection signaled Christ's victory and evil's ultimate demise. He cannot be shaken, and he will not be overthrown. He sits and he reigns on the throne in heavens, and he laughs. Listen to this from Ephesians 1, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable, rich, immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and was seated and seated him at his right hand of his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named. That's got to be read like that. Not only in this age, but into the age to come. And he put all things under his feet. And he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. What? He's triumphing. His promises will be fulfilled. What do we have to fear? The king of kings who triumphs has come and he has triumphed over sin and he has triumphed over our rebellion and even death itself has been and will be conquered. Great, immeasurable power at work toward those who believe. What grace, what mercy, what a king. And this king in his mighty, righteous power has come to save his people. Hallelujah! What a savior. He's established his king, the begotten son. And lastly, we wrap up this psalm, not only to be encouraged in our sovereign king, but as his people, we rejoice and we follow him. The voice of authority in Psalm turn, Psalms 2 turns to the people and to the nations and the kings and the rulers, and he tells them to make a choice in verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed 
are those who take refuge in him. First, everyone should know lest they should claim that God is not fair. He is given full warning of what he intends to do if they do not repent. He calls us to be wise, to be warned, and to serve the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, when we see be wise, it often appears with he prospers. Be wise to prosper. And then they go together often, as in Psalm 1 we see, that meditating on the law, on God's word, will result in that prospering, that enjoyment of this good life serving the king. Joshua is commanded, he's commanded not to turn away from the law, not to turn away from God's law, not to turn to the right or turn to the left so that he would be wise. The blessed man of Psalm 1, as this blessed one Psalm 1 does, Joshua was commanded then to meditate on God's law day and night so that he would prosper and be wise. David instructs his son before he dies, Solomon. He says, do the same. Do not turn from God's word to the right or to the left, but meditate on God's word. In verse 10 here in Psalm 2, it seems with these rulers and the kings, we are being told to make themselves wives through the submission to the word of God. Listen to God's word and what he has promised in his word. And in this warning to repent of from their, excuse me, and in God's word is this warning to repent of their proud autonomy. Again, God has made this very clear. And he has spoken very clearly at, at what should be done. And, and, and of course, this is a warning for us to remember God's word, to follow the king, to submit to the king, to serve the king. And we must always be repenting of our rebellion, to serve the Lord by being obedient to his word with fear. But also we see the command to rejoice. That those who are following this king are not angry and are angry and disappointed in submission. But there is joy and rejoicing at following this king. So the decision for us is whether or not we will sing this psalm or not. Not because it begins with a, or excuse me, because it, it begins with a deliberate distancing ourselves from rebellion. The effects of the truths of, of our king, who is the son of God, it subdues us. It subdues us to our proud desires. And it moves us from looking at ourselves and giving into what we want in our rebellion and desiring a sinful freedom and moves us deeply into the reality that Jesus Christ is King and that he is Lord and there's nothing that we can change that and that he is good and that he is righteous and that he is kind and he loves his people and that he has come to serve his people by being a ransom. 
And at the same time, this king in all of his power is terrifyingly holy and righteous. Where none can stand before him, and yet mercifully, there is this call to be warned and to be wise and to serve him and to rejoice, which is joy. To kiss the son, meaning to submit to him. And no longer find refuge in your futile ways, but to find refuge in him. Brothers and sisters, where do we find refuge from a raging world around us? We find it in Jesus Christ. We take refuge in him because he is the only one who can save us from ourselves, from our rebellion from the judgment that is coming to the raging world. And it is by faith that we believe in Jesus Christ that the only begotten Son, He has taken the penalty of our treason. And so we rejoice in nothing else. We rejoice in no one else and we take refuge in nothing else or no one else. He is our refuge. There is no refuge in you. There's no refuge in me. And there's no refuge in this world. But there is a refuge. There is a solid foundation and a safe place in Jesus Christ. He is our King. He is the Son. He is our refuge. Praise the Lord.